0: Welcome to the Nerd Party.
1: Welcome to Great Shot Kid, the podcast on the Nerd Party Network that is focused on the the behind-the-scenes facts and figures of the films that you love to love, love to hate, and just love to talk about. I'm John. And I'm Mike. And this week we are going to be talking about the assignment from last week, uh, which was to watch the film Unsane by Steven Soderbergh. Now, of course, before we get into that topic, thenerdparty.com slash contact is where you can contact us. The nerdparty.com is where you can see all of the shows that The Nerd Party has. Everything from Doctor Who to Star Trek to Star Wars to writing and film to nerd nuptials to you name it, we got it. Come and check it out. And, of course, you can find us on Twitter at Join nerd Party. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram as The Nerd Party. Use the hashtag GreatShotKid. Let us know you're thinking of us. So... This uh this could be chapter twelve, I guess, in your long term plan to turn me into a Steven Soderbergh fan. Um, yeah, this has also been a, working out. It's working out pretty well because uh I you know why beat around the bush I I kind of loved unseen. I thought that uh, at its core it had an absolutely wonderfully written script, and uh, the the performances were just great. Uh, which I'm finding to be a very consistent theme with Soderbergh is that he, he seems to get really great performances out of his actors um, and really convincing stuff. And I thought it was fresh and innovative and exactly in the context of what we were talking about last week, where you said, you know, watch something like Unsane break out of your bubble. And boy, I, you know, I knew this was coming out. I, you know, it, every movie that comes out, I have an intention of seeing it in the theater, and it just doesn't happen. But, man, this was really good. This really, really wowed me. I thought it was great.
0: Yeah, I figured you'd like it since you're a horror fan and all, all of that stuff. And yeah. I mean, this is a horror movie, but in a very um, different kind of way, uh, which is, is what he does. I mean, he's done this a few times now, like with Contagion. That's very much a horror movie, but, you know, the the monster is germs, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But it's horrifying, and, and here, you know, the monster is bureaucracy. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, it's very, like, Kafka-esque,
1: and yeah, um, yeah. I, I think it's great. You know, it, it's funny. Uh, I was talking about this with a coworker worker uh, the day after seeing it, and I mentioned that I saw it. And so, you know, we started talking over Slack because you know, we work in sort of a bullpen setting. And he was like, oh, I don't want to spoil anything. So, like, we started talking back and forth about the characters and certain arcs and stuff like that. And one of the interesting insights that he had was that there's, uh, you know, uh, an implicit uh, critique of the, the actual prison system in America with this as well about how it's motivated by profit and it's motivated by, you know, they're not interested in curing you or treating anyone. They're interested in getting a body in the bed because that's what, like it, like you said, it's Kafka-esque where it just, it exists to sustain itself uh, sort of thing. And I thought that the turn that it took too was really fascinating. I did not expect it to turn into this sort of um, Hitchcockian tense drama thing like i expected it to be i i expected it to be just this one thing of a person trapped in the system unable to get out and then to have it actually make a turn and become that more horror movie sort of thing i thought was fascinating like i didn't see it coming and it was but at the same time when it happened i my reaction was oh yeah of course
0: Yeah, and and I know a lot of people have a problem with that. They're like, that's too convenient. You know, that wouldn't happen. And I I don't have a problem with that. I think that it's pretty... I mean, you could say that it's convenient, but at the same time, it it is kind of an exploitative horror movie. And I I think that this is something that you would find in a movie like that, you know? I mean, one of the things that that I love is the very last shot of the movie mm-hmm. as the credits roll. Yeah. There's just something about that, which I find to be like hilarious and, and perfectly in keeping with, with the rest of the movie and that it's so like overly dramatic and everything like that, but in like the cheesiest
1: possible way. It, it had a very uh, 70s freeze frame feel to it, which I, yeah. I guess is, uh, you know, a thing that's sort of, Comes through with Soderbergh, uh, like sort of like a stamp of his style, I would consider. Um, But it, uh, like, I want to talk to you about the the technical stuff because, of course, like it's all shot on an iPhone, which is you know kind of crazy. But I like, I thought it was very interesting because what I want to get at, you know, with you is what becomes the role of the cinematographer with a film like this if you're shooting on an iPhone. Like at what point are they, you know, like, like like, traditionally a cinematographer, you're sitting there, you're framing the shot, you're setting it up, you're getting the lights right, but you're dealing with a device where it's not going to be conducive to the traditional way of working with film. What, what do you think this – obviously not everybody's going to shoot on an iPhone, but obviously this type of technology, smaller cameras and everything, do you think this changes the role of – the director of photography?
0: I don't think that it changes the role of the director of photography, but I think it changes the atmosphere uh, created on the set. Um, I mean, one thing to keep in mind is that for the past 18 years, Soderbergh has been his own cinematographer. So, you know, a- everything that, that he shoots, he shoots himself, and he's he's really good at it. He's one of the few people, I think, who's able to pull off that that director-cinematographer dual role. I mean, that seems like a really hard thing to do, but, but he's really good at it. And one of the things which you can see in all of his work, you know, I remember him talking about this on the commentary for the Limey, which was shot, you know, just on 35 millimeter, was the idea of trying to create an environment in which the actors could perform without distraction and i remember one scene in particular where he talks about how he's like shooting through like a window you know and and seeing you know this this scene play out from another room essentially and the reason for that was because the room was so small and claustrophobic that if you were to put a camera in there the actors would have spent most of their time maneuvering around the camera as opposed to just playing out the scene. And whenever you hear about him, like, blocking scenes or anything like that, he talks about this a lot with, like, Ocean's Eleven, where you'd think that there'd be these extremely complex setups where you're dealing with 11 characters sometimes and trying to choreograph them and figure out, you know, where you're going to have all of the the actors, you know, maneuver throughout the scene and where you're going to have the camera fit into that. And his approach to that stuff has always been to tell the actors during the rehearsal stand where you would stand. And when you you know come across a certain line, if you feel like you would walk across the room, walk across the room do whatever you would do in this moment as this character. And he would just watch that in the rehearsal and then say, okay, remember that that's what you're going to be doing in the actual scene. And after the actors figured out what they were doing, he would figure out where to put the camera. Mm -hmm. So he's always sort of been this like performance first filmmaker And one of the things which he finds to be, I think, really exciting about the iPhone and one of the things which he talked about even before Unsane was officially announced, even though it had already been shot at the time, was the idea of the technology becoming so compact that you can essentially make it distraction-free for the actors. Mm-hmm. And I think more than anything, that's the reason why he shoots on on the iPhone, or at least for this movie and his next movie, which is already done. Um, he, he shot that on the iPhone as well.
1: So uh, obviously the production time then really gets shortened uh, as well because you don't have as many elaborate setups that you have to do.
0: Yeah, and that's his thing. He always has a very short production time. I mean, you look at like the work he did on the Nick and the amount of time that he took to shoot that massive production. It's insane. But I did, there is a a thing on the, um, well, I, I mean, I've got the iTunes version, but there is a special feature on there where it's basically just like a four minute long montage of sort of like behind the scenes footage where they don't, like, talk about, like, this is how we shot this scene or anything. You just kind of see him shooting scenes, you know, and, and you get to see the camera, you get to see all that stuff. And I was actually shocked by how complex it was. I mean, I guess I shouldn't be because it is a major motion picture. And even if you are using an iPhone, you're still going to be using all of the best, you know, supporting equipment that you. Ha- could possibly have but it's not like he was just holding his phone right you know he's got like a rig you know different types of rigs different types of you know um like sort of like handles which he can use to 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 hold the thing and even and this is what really shocked me there is even one rig that he has where it looks like there's an external lens which goes in front of the camera in order to change, you know, how, how, how the, 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 the images, you know, photographed. So, so that was really interesting. I, I actually showed a bunch of these to, I, you know, I showed some stills to uh, Tristan because he's, um you know, obviously he does this for a living and, and he said that he, he was going to be um, teaching a course on, iPhone production or something like that, you know, so he was very curious to see, you know, some of the stuff. And it's interesting because he he recognized a lot of it. He's like, I have that piece of equipment. I use that that app to, to shoot stuff, you know, things like that. And so so it is very much, even though it is more complex than, you know, just pulling your phone out of your pocket, it is very much something which can be done by anyone who who has a, a
1: phone you know so here here's a question is uh, as, as we're sitting here talking about that that technical aspect to it um i know that david lynch has embraced digital uh filmmaking and stuff he's a huge proponent of it and he has you know small cameras and stuff like that in a sense i'm stunned that somebody like lynch hasn't joined in with this particular sort of uh revolution of Hey, you know what we can do this, we can use this, we can have you know shorter production timelines and everything. And it almost seems like this is something where I would you know to to relate it back to sort of what spurred you driving us to watch Unsane and everything. Like I I would expect somebody like Lucas to be even intrigued by something like this and say, "Oh, really?" because he's always trying to get you know, a documentary feel to everything. And I think that's one of the things that works so well in Unsane is that documentary feel. I mean, there are obviously shots where, like, you know, in the beginning when she's in her office, it's obvious that the, the phone is just, like, sitting on top of her computer while she's sitting there. Yeah. But it's a very fitting and intimate shot, and it distorts her in a certain way, and and everything looks a little uh, a little off. So I, I just, I I find it surprising that more people haven't, uh, jumped onto this particular train.
0: Yeah, there have been a couple movies that, that have done it. Um, I want to say that movie, I think it's called Tangerine. I think they, they mm-hmm. used the, the iPhone. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if we see more, but I do think it is kind of an extreme thing to do because as much as you know, Soderbergh says that the image looks like velvet, I mean, it is still a little rough around the edges at times. You yeah, know? It,
1: it has a little bit of trouble with uh, contrast and low light and stuff like that. It's, yeah. That's for sure. Um, but I mean, the cameras are only going to get better, right? Yeah, sure, definitely.
0: And he is. I mean, he's not going full. I mean, even though I think at one point he's like, I may never shoot with anything other than an iPhone. He might. I think he might have said that. But his next movie, his next movie is going to be a movie about like basketball um and that that was shot with the iPhone but his next movie after that is going to be this sort of um i for, i forget exactly what it's about i think it's some piece of historical fiction like some piece of like about um i don't know i i forget i forget what it is like some sort of like political scandal or something like that oh, but cool. it's going to be like much more of like a sort of epic you know, thing with like a cast of thousands and and, and all the rest of it. And for that, I think because of the nature of the thing, he he realizes that he needs to have a style, which maybe is is a bit slicker than you can get with the iPhone. So he's going to be, you know, using probably the red camera again. That seems to be his go-to these days is the red camera.
1: Well, that's the, but see, that sort of springs into the, uh, you know, the next thought is, you know, ke- keeping it with in terms of like, you know, the blockbusters and everything. Do you see any potential for this sort of filmmaking to be used in, like, uh, presuming the cameras get better, presuming it handles the low light situations better, those which it inevitably will? Do you see a situation where somebody could say, shoot an avatar like this? Uh, you know, and I don't mean with all of the mocap and everything because you need you know a room full of computers to do that that sort of thing. But something where everybody's in a blue room, like uh, Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow, like doesn't that become easier to make today because everything's just going to be generated in the computer anyway? You know, like it's it's minimal sets, it's just people in costumes with maybe a a piece or two here or there, and everything's going to be created in the computer. Can't they just go ahead and start producing some of the you know, put their toe in the water and make some of the mid-level blockbusters in this fashion.
0: Yeah, they could. I mean, I don't really know. Like for a like a studio production, I don't really know how much money they would necessarily be saving by doing this. I mean, they're all, they're saving a ton of money by shooting digital instead of you know film. But I mean, I think the the more exciting application, as I see it, is just the idea that. I mean, we're all walking around with these cameras yeah. in our pockets, you know, which means that anyone can do it, you know. I, so I'm not so excited about George Lucas using the iPhone or even Steven Soderbergh using the iPhone as I am about someone who's never made a movie before using the iPhone. It goes back to that thing which you know Francis Ford Coppola predicted in the Hearts of Darkness documentary, where He talks about how, you know, like, writers can write. All you need is a a pen and a piece of paper. You know, you don't need any other technology, but there's this barrier of money when it comes to making movies because you need the equipment. And as that changes, you know, which was already happening back then, you know, it's going to become more and more accessible and more and more democratic And sooner or later, there's going to be a teenage girl in Cincinnati who makes a movie in her house. And it's going to be, you know, a masterpiece, which which everyone will see. And, you know, we've been getting closer and closer and closer to that. And, you know, for decades now, we've been saying, like, now we're at that point. But... (laughs) the the further along we go the closer and closer we get to that point you know and now we can say again now we're at that point because you know the technology is there especially with you know like post production thing I mean that's the other thing is you know like you have all the editing capabilities too and everything like Soderbergh after shooting this new movie that he did I forget what it's called like high flying bird or something like that I forget what it's called but he posted a thing on Twitter where he's like, uh, we wrapped principal photography at 3.15 p.m. and the first cut of the movie is done at 5.37 p.m. Like, That's crazy. Yeah. That's and crazy. I mean, other people have done that. Like, you know, Kevin Smith would, would do that. Like with Red State, his big thing was like, finish shooting the movie and then show the entire movie to the crew at the wrap party, you know, a week later, which he did. So, yeah, I mean, it's kind of exciting how technology is advancing, not just in terms of photography, but in terms of everything. And this isn't something where he like went to his studio and blah, blah, blah. Like he took a picture of his laptop while he was sitting on the train. Like that's where he finished this movie
1: you know but what is the you know i i i look at um cuz uh, bloomhouse which of course you know the big horror productions uh, that that are big and with you know halloween down the pike coming along i'm actually surprised more horror movies aren't doing this sort of method because those things are just supposed to be just churned out like it's it's grist for the mill sort of thing you're going to get your you know, it's sort of like uh, the environment Star Wars was released in where it's like sci-fi does this and let's just, you know, do our thing, make the cost minimal and, and and get it out there and stuff like that. So I'm surprised that I haven't seen more of that with horror.
0: But they are, you know, again, like Halloween, they can afford to do whatever the hell they want with that, you know. But like I just went to this horror film festival here in, in uh, Chicago and they showed a Blumhouse movie, which is not even going to get released in the theaters called um, Boogeyman Pop. And um, it's kind of interesting that the filmmakers were there. Super young filmmakers, by the way. I'm like, what's going on here? But, (laughs) you know, it was this guy who essentially, you know, he came up with this idea. Well, I I think he he shot some other movie. He shot some short film and put it up on YouTube. And Chris Weitz, the uh, writer of uh, Rogue One... Saw it and was like, hey, this kid's got talent and, you know, got in touch with him and said, like, hey, if you have another idea and you need some whatever support, whatever, I'll put my name on it so that you can get funding or whatever it was. And they it's basically kind of like a horror anthology movie. And they spent like I want to say they spent like twenty five thousand dollars on the first, like, three of four segments, you know? Wow. And they, then they shot it for for nothing. And they had these, like, three segments which which existed, and they cut them together and everything like that. And through, you know, their connections with Chris Whites or whatever, they basically got it in the hands of Blumhouse and said, look, you know, here's our thing. We've got one more segment to shoot you know, give us money or whatever. And Blumhouse saw it and was like, uh, okay, here, here's another $25,000 for you to shoot the last segment. So the last segment looks like way like higher production value than the rest <laughs> of the movie because, yeah. you know... But even that, there's only 25000 bucks. But, you know, they shot it with, like, digital SLR cameras, essentially, you know, what you would use for still cameras mm-hmm. because that's become, like the thing to do if you want to have like a really good looking movie for no cost. And I, I've actually, um, well, I didn't shoot it personally, but I like directed a, a little short film, um, that my friend Zach shot. And this was a few years back. And I remember like, you know, he's a professional, you know, video guy and everything like that. And he's like, and he's got like tons of, you know, professional grade equipment and everything and he's like uh i'm like okay so what are we going to use or whatever and he's like well i want to use my dslr camera my little canon you know 7d or whatever it is and i'm like really like that's (laughs) you know okay and he's like yeah 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 no trust me so then he you know started shooting it and i was like oh my God, like this looks amazing because really what it comes down to is the lens, right? And you can change your lenses all you want. And those are lenses which are good enough for like still photography. So, you know, shoot shooting motion picture photography, like it looks amazing, you know, and the sensor is really good and everything. And this is just like a camera that you would buy at Best Buy and you're using it to shoot, you know, video instead of film. And it looks great. And that's kind of become the go-to thing. It's not as low-tech and compact as the iPhone, but in some ways it's it's a much better tool and you get a much better result because you've got that great lens and everything. And, I mean, getting back to, you know, your whole thing, like why aren't horror movies doing this or, or whatever, like I think they are. It's just that for, I mean... I mean, if we're going to be honest, you know, I mean, I think people tend to forget how expensive iPhones actually are just because they, you know, whatever. But like this camera is probably less expensive than an iPhone because you can't, you know, watch movies on it in addition to making them or whatever. And um, you can get, you know, like a a really, really, really high quality image um, off of it. And, uh, you know, you're, you're able to make a movie for 25,000 bucks and have it look like a major production that Blumhouse can stick their, their name on the front of and people would never think twice about it, you know?
1: Yeah. You know, I, as we're sitting here talking about it though, like something that I wonder is, you know, and this is the sort of reductive question that everybody always gets back to with you know the advance of technology and everything is like is it possible because these things have become commonplace and because people you know use these you know fabulous pieces of technology instead of going around making films or you know shoot pictures of your dinner and and check twitter sort of thing is there do you think that that has anything to do with the fact that you know, there's sort of a perception at least that people are just consuming things as content and not even paying attention to quality so much anymore. You know, they're like, I mean, in a sense, I see it as an opportunity because I think to myself when I watch Unsane, now I know Soderbergh's name carries weight with it, but haven't we entered an era where people are consuming so much content, this just makes sense for them to start making movies like this just to keep ahead of the wave and to keep costs down to get you know to, to get that sort of thing because I, I look at something like Unsane and I don't see it getting you know like a fifty million dollar production budget. But I see Soderbergh coming in and saying I can shoot it for I can shoot this in twenty days for less than a fraction of that cost and this and Universal yeah, think, saying Yeah, okay, cool. I mean, Go for I, it.
0: I, I definitely think that that's a thing, but I think the big shift happened when they went from film to digital, and that's when the really, really big cost-saving, you know, measures came into place. And at this point, while while it could be a big deal to a movie like Boogeyman Pop or something like that, for any movie which Steven Soderbergh is going to be a part of for any movie as sophisticated as unsane like choosing between a red camera and an iPhone is essentially a very very minimal difference in terms of expense uh, Mm. because it's yeah, I mean, I mean, you think about like all these people are f- flying first class and everything like that, and certainly Soderbergh has made movies in the past, which have, I mean, he shot that the movie Full Frontal with a Canon XL1 video camera, a mini DV camera, which was sort of like the go-to for film students across the the, the world at that point in time. And when he did that, he very specifically wanted to make a movie with kind of those film school limits and he made all of his actors including julia roberts and stuff like that work for scale he didn't have catered meals he made people drive themselves to the set he made people provide their their own wardrobe and and all this stuff they had like a they actually had a list of rules for making the movie and it was in order to sort of like get into that spirit but I, and and that I, I kept kept the budget down substantially too, but I think in the case of something like unsane and and, and just in general, it's really not so much a, a cost saving measure as it is a creative one, because okay. does these you know these things are so expensive uh, in in every other way,
1: you know. No, oh, that's that's fair. I mean, you know, it, it is kind of mind-blowing to me because you had said, you know, you were trying to put together, you know, what's my top 10 up to this point of the year. And, uh, I, you know, I agree with you. Unsane, there have been plenty of movies that I've enjoyed and, and really liked, but Unsane is definitely in my my tops uh, for this year so far. Now, granted, I have not seen nearly as many Films out there in the world, as uh, as other people have, I'm I'm primarily streaming and renting. You know, even with unseen and everything like that. I just, I just think that it's, um, you know, it's so weird and wild to live in a time where something like this can be done, and just appreciating that fact and appreciating that somebody like Soderbergh is pushing it uh for for this reason and i i will say to get back to you know where i was talking about your your long-range plan to get me to uh become a soderbergh fan i am finally going to watch i'm putting this on the queue now uh sex lies and videotape which i've never seen but i remember the splash it made back in the day and i know you talked about it on uh talk film society on that soderbergh 2828 Along um, with
0: every single other soderbergh movie
1: yes <laughs> yes indeed so I'll be listening to that when I uh, when I see Sex Lies and Videotape. But it, Sex Lies and Videotape
0: is good. Um, I mean, it's important from a historical standpoint because it is the origin of Soderbergh, and it it's the movie which created Sundance. Essentially, you know, I mean, at the time, I think it was called like the. USA Film Festival or something I, I forget what it was called mm-hmm. but you know it's the one that kind of puts Sundance on the map and put indie cinema on the map and you know is very significant from a historical standpoint but especially you know when you get to things like Unsane and see the places that Soderbergh ends up you watch it and you're kind of like okay fine that's it all right yeah but um, you know, if if you're looking for something like Unsane, I, there is sort of like this weird trend which seems to be happening in like the latter half of Soderbergh's career, where he's afraid of the healthcare industry in one way or another. Um, and I would recommend uh, uh, um, Side Effects, which was one of his his last movies, which okay. is all about the pharmaceutical companies. And the the lengths that they go to to you know make a buck maybe at the expense of of the people who they're trying to treat, and then the Nick as well. Even though I'm I'm even though the main character in the Nick is you know a a cocaine addict in you know turn of the century New York, uh, who you know doesn't use. Gloves or anything like that, because why would you, you know, back then, right. I, I still, I still have more confidence in him as, as a, as a healthcare uh, provider than in <laughs> anyone in either unsane or uh, side effects. So This is kind of interesting how that, and, and Contagion as well. Have you seen Contagion? I haven't, but I feel like I need to. You can get it for five bucks on iTunes right now. Do it. Okay. So worth it. All right. I mean, especially, I'm like, as down. a horror movie fan, it is straight-up horror, like, not I mean, no question about it. I mean, on the edge of your seat, you know,
1: whatever, but it's so, so good. Gwyneth Paltrow's in it, right? Yes. That's a hurdle, but okay. It's all right. Because the thing, is, cause the thing is, I saw Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow, and she's in that, and I loved it, so that's cool. That's she's cool. I also loved she, Iron Man 3, honestly. So I don't know. Yeah. I don't know why I carry this this weird torch that like everybody else does, where it's like, oh, Gwyneth Paltrow. It's gotta be completely because of that goop thing. What the, what
0: about Heart Eight?
1: I mean, she's in that. That's true. I, I, I think she's well, she's great, you know. I she is a really great actress. I don't understand why that train started or why I even jumped on it at this point. I think it's like one of those Tom Cruise things where people are like,
0: she's weird. We can't like her, you know. Mm. It's like I don't care what she does in her personal life, whatever. She's a good actress, but um, yeah, she's one of just many, 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 many people in that movie. Um, and and all all things considered, she has a pretty minor role, but that's that's one of those cast of thousands, you know, sort of like throwback to the seventies where you have like all the pictures in the little boxes mm-hmm. on the poster or whatever. Yeah. You know, oh, that's thing. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they Actually, did, they, they didn't do that on the poster, but they could have. They should have. You know.
1: Yeah. I I remember when uh, the Godfather had its 25th anniversary uh, re-release. They had that that poster that had like all of the people down yeah. on the bottom. It's always a lot of fun. Superman did that, I think. Yeah, that's it. right. It did. It did. <laughs> um, you know, I I I don't know. I still live now in in a post-unsane world. I want to see something with the scale of like a solo shot like this.
0: It'd be cool, and Soderbergh would be the guy to do it. You know, I mean, yeah, it would be so cool to see. You know, I. Well, I mean, one just day when, it'll happen. You know, why
1: not? When you just when you think about the the effects involved, you know, to begin with, and everything like that, but like you even think of like tight. You know, in the cockpit shots, you think of everything that goes into a cockpit shot where like you got the big camera, you got to move the piece over here and you got to have like I even remember with uh, Revenge of the Sith, um, Hayden Christensen was tall enough that they had to like remove part of the cockpit to get certain shots because mm-hmm. he was so tall that if they tried to get the shot like that, like his knees were in frame. So they had to, like he didn't technically fit in the shot. Yeah. And so, like you know that's the classic sort of film trickery, but like I think of, okay, well, you got this tiny camera he could you could have done it, you could have gotten in there and gotten that shot that you needed without you know, okay, let's take half a day, let's get the teamsters in, let's take half the cockpit apart and resupport it, and put his feet somewhere and you and know that sort of thing. He talked about that
0: too, I think it was with side effects, which he shot with the red camera, and he wanted a shot of like um i think rooney mara was like driving a car and he wanted a shot of like basically her foot on the gas pedal and they needed to like strip down the camera and like hook up everything like remotely through cables so that like the entire body of the camera was like thrown into the trunk of the car and it was just like the head of the camera with you know the lens which they stuck on you know in in on the floor of the the driver's side, you know, seat. And he's like, it was a massive production just to get that done. Whereas now, I mean, you can just stick the iPhone down there and, you know, call it a day, you know, and that's, that, that's the thing that he, he really loves is not having to, you know, build sets with removable walls or anything like that. Right. You can just exist in the environment
1: and it, it you know and it, it additionally it's it's pretty cool because you think about this tool in his hands uh is different than uh, what was it called hardcore henry where they rigged it up and like the whole thing was from first person perspective yeah yeah and it's like that like i saw all of the stuff they went through to set that up i never saw the film i didn't hear particularly good things about it but i got to imagine it probably would have been so much easier if they had this sort of <laughs> approach to it, where it was like, "All right, put a GoPro on your chest, and we'll put a different lens on it." Mm-hmm. You know, because like the GoPro always fisheyes everything, makes it look really weird and all of that. Yeah. But I, I guess the iPhone is just more. Um, the iPhone does that to some extent too, but you know. Yeah, but but like you can, like you said, you can resolve that with uh, other lenses know, certain lenses and stuff. And stuff. Yeah, yeah, like
0: with the rigs. Yeah. And, and you're right about that. You know, I mean, I I always think of like crank, you know, where half that movie was shot with like little cameras that they bought from Best Buy. And those guys were just so crazy and just, they're like, whatever, this camera is only a few hundred bucks. You know, what do we care? So they would, you know, get on their skateboards. You can see like this behind the scenes footage of them, you know, it's usually the directors themselves, like on rollerblades or something running around with these cameras and if, you know, they trip and fall and the camera breaks into a million pieces, it doesn't matter because, you know, I think they talked about like, you know, over the course of the production, they destroyed something like 17 cameras, but, you know, they got amazing footage out of it. So, you know, well, you can the, definitely <laughs> do that now with the iPhone.
1: The horrifying thing, though, is now a movie like The Room just became easier to make and cheaper mm-hmm. and, uh, you know... Tommy Wiseau, so, I remember from uh, the book, I don't know if the movie, I never saw the movie version, but um, the disaster artist talked about how, like, he just straight out bought the cameras. Yeah. And, like, it floored everybody. They were like, you're supposed to rent those. Like, I can just imagine, like, I'd love to, I, you know what, even though it would be arguably not as good a product, I'd love to see Tommy Wiseau so grab an iPhone and make a movie. That would be that would be so much fun. Yeah, he, he he might do that. I I don't see the, him having
0: that type of personality. I see him as having the type of personality where it's like I can afford to use the right. best camera available or whatever, but it would be it would be <laughs> interesting to see him use the iPhone and see what happens, you know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, if anybody wants to discuss uh, iPhone photography or filming with you, where can they find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at
0: Mumbles3K. And you can also find me on my website doing a show called Film Damage, uh, where we talk about uh, movies from the perspective of the booth. And, and you can find that over on filmdamagepod.com.
1: And uh, I am uh, Max's Moriarty. So, yeah. you know, there there's that too. Uh, let him know I feel more like a con than a Moriarty. <laughs> So I may explode by the end of it, but uh, it's going to be a good run. It's going to be a good run. Cool. Uh, and, of course, you can find me online at KesselJunkie, usually on Twitter. You can find me here on the network co-hosting Aggressive Negotiations, a Star Wars podcast that looks at the deep nooks and crannies uh, of the Star Wars galaxy. And you can find me out there in the ether floating around with my pal Craig on Words with Nerds. So thank you for joining us. And until next week... The balcony is closed. Join the revolution. Join the nerd party.